0: we say save. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, we are going to continue through our series, uh, going through a exposition of the book of Judges using a uh, historical grammatical uh, and redemptive historical uh, hermeneutics. So I hope you, this has been a blessing to you and uh, has been educational to help you understand. Uh, for those of you who are looking for some imp- uh, ways to improve your handling and reading of the, the the Bible passages, that this is giving some insight into how Uh, we can consistently do that. So I hope you're enjoying these episodes. Uh, As always, uh, I recommend that you read the the passages first. So today we'll be going through Judges 10 through Judges 16. It's going to be a pretty sizable amount, but it is one giant chunk um, dealing with the Philistines. So we will look into that uh, again. So if you want to read Judges 10 through Judges 16, uh, pause this, read that, and come back. That would probably be beneficial to you so with that let's dive right in and talk about the judges enjoy the show so judges 10 starts off with the second account of the non-cyclical judges or the minor Judges, we see uh, Tola uh, and Jair show up in this. So in 10:1, uh, we see those formulas again. Uh, the the after there uh, after there arose uh, and there arose after or and there arose after him uh, in in each one of those cases. So in 10:1, we see uh, now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, rose up to save Israel. Uh, And then in verse 3, after him, Jair the Gileadite rose up and judged Israel for 22 years. Um, There are some interesting things about this. Again, the the minor judges are following that same downward cycle. There are these little textual red flags um, that the careful reader should be catching. Uh, We'll notice, for example, Tola, who is from the tribe of Issachar, lives in the hill country of Ephraim, right? So in verse one, he's a man, uh, he's a man of Issachar, but it says that he lives uh, at the end of uh, verse one, he lives in the hill country uh, of Ephraim. Ephraim, which is evidence of the failure of his own tribe to fulfill its mission of driving out the Canaanites from the land that they have been given. Uh, Now, in this, there's no specific enemy that is mentioned uh, from whom he delivered Israel in contrast with the first non-cyclical judge, Shamgar. Uh, Jair uh, raises the issue of kingship again. So you'll read in in, in Jair that he had... (coughs) 30 sons who rose on, who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. And so this, again, is raising that issue uh, of kingship and, and whether or not their, their judgeship is more concerned with building a power base, building kind of a dynasty for themselves. Um, and this is some evidence uh, of, of uh, royal power. I mean, think about he had 30 sons, Right again, not just children. Thirty sons that would that would point to him probably having more than one wife, having some type of uh, of uh, of harem. Uh, it's not as many sons as Gideon has, as we saw before, but it's still uh, a pretty sizable amount. Um, they rode on donkeys. This is important. Um, we think of donkeys as kind of. Uh, not as regal as you know those those big those big uh, horses right from uh, from the medieval period. Uh, but in this period, monarchs actually rode on donkeys during this period. Riding on donkeys was a sign uh, of being a king. This is, by the way, why Jesus rode on a donkey uh, on uh, when when he came in on the triumphal entry. So uh, the monarchs rode on donkeys. That was a sign of royalty, and they had control. It's not that they lived in thirty cities. They they rode they they had control. Um, they had, they possessed 30 cities, um, again, outside of their own land. They, they possessed it in Ephraim, right? which which comes back to the problem of you have one tribe actually having control and power within the land of another tribe. So there, there are all these red flags uh, that, that you should be reading. Sometimes we just read through these quick and we're like, oh, he lived here, he lived there, he had sons, blah, blah, blah. When our eyes glaze over, these are here for a reason. They are telling us. Um, They're they're throwing up red flags. Pay attention, right? Israel is not doing well. It is not healthy. They are not following uh, God's command as their king. Um, We then get into Jephthah in verse 6. Jephthah goes from 10.6 to 12.7. Um, he is a, a cyclical judge. Um, we see that the oppressors are the Philistines and the Ammonites. Um, there does seem to be likely some overlap with the Samson cycle. This is one area where it does seem these judges ruled at the same time or judged at the same time, but from different, uh, in different locales. Um, <coughs> Jephthah seems to deal with the Ammonites, um, and Samson seems to deal with the Philistines. Um, we see Israel is entirely conquered and spiritually corrupt. There's an intensification of the severity of the situation. And we can see this uh, starting in verse 11. There's seven groups of oppressors mentioned in verses 11 and 12. So it's verse 11. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? And when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried to me and I saved you from their hands. Um, uh, so there, there, there are all these, these oppressors mentioned. Um, we see the severity of the pr- oppression uh, earlier in verse 8. Um, they, they, they had afflicted and oppressed the sons of Israel that year. Uh, for 18 years, they oppressed all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. Um, notice it's called the land of the, the Amorites. Um, it, it's not called the land of, uh, of Benjamin um, like it should be. Um, it is the land of the Amorites. They, they conquered. They owned it. The, the, they had not, you know, Israel had not completed the ban. Um, God himself, not a prophet, this time actually confronts Israel. Um, and so it's the Lord that says to Israel, he, he, you know the, the, most likely this is a prophet speaking, but it is directly ascribed to God narratively um, uh, showing that, that God is is basically coming down and saying hey, get your stuff together. Um, prophets uh, confront Israel, they front, confront in the Gideon cycle, uh, but in this case, we're told it's God uh, himself that confronts. Now again, we know that when a prophet speaks, it is God speaking, but in this case, narratively, it directly just ties it to God. It's like when the president uses the, 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 the press representative to speak to the press you could say the press re- representative, uh, you know, the only one I'm thinking of is Ari Fleischman. I know that's not the current one, but, uh, the, you know, the press representative said this on behalf of the president. Um, you know, a prophet said this, or it could be said directly, the president said this, even though it was the press secretary. So, again, likely this is still coming from a prophet. But the narrative, the the, the author is showing us this is intensified. God is Speaking to Israel, so Israel's response, however, does not seem to be genuine. Um, we see that that even though they repent, they quickly return to serving other gods as soon as the crisis is over. Uh, we see that we see that right away. Um, we can see that the translation in verse sixteen it says, "So they remove the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord." And there's a translational issue. It says, "And he could no longer endure the misery of Israel." Um, verse sixteen, um, it could be read as his soul was short because of the miserableness of Israel. That is, th- th- this could be a statement of frustration, or exasperation, or 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 anger, not with Israel being oppressed, right? Not not with you know, not the sympathy of someone that is experiencing misery, um, but it could be that fresh, that, that sense of frustration or anger with the the, the miserable spiritual state of Israel that the, the it's with, you know, they have that kind of genitive structure of the misery of Israel is that. Israel experiencing the the misery, or is that the miserableness of Israel? Um, and so there is a, a translation and interpretation Israel uh, issue um, there. So the we then we then get to the deliverer Jephthah. Um, so Jephthah uh, arises in in 11:1 We see the emergence of Jephthah is purely uh, a human development. Um, this is not. Uh, He is not raised up by God. So there is no statement that Jephthah is raised up by God like with the previous uh, judges. We see that Jephthah is the son of either a, a prostitute... Uh, or a concubine. Um, so in 11, one two we read, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead had fathered Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another warrior woman so Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless men gathered around Jephthah and they went wherever he did um, so jephthah is the again the son of, of questionable origin to say the least uh, he's chosen by the Gileadites so we read later that the Gileadites are, are being oppressed by Ammon um, and they they're they 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 aren't able to to Kind of deliver themselves. They're 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 being oppressed. So they go they they go out to they go out to Jephthah, who's basically uh, living in the wilds with these, these worthless men. they're, they're these mercenaries um, living kind of an, a non-Israelite life. Um, and they, they, so they, they go, the Gileadites go out, um, and they basically, Hey, it's basically the, the, the idea is, Hey, God isn't, God isn't delivering us. We're going to go get our own. We're going to go raise up our own deliverer from these, these worthless men out in the wilderness. We're going to go get the, you know, the, this, this, uh, illegitimate son of a prostitute who we cast out. We're going to bring him in to judge and rule over us. It's a rather indiscriminate choice. Um, and uh, and he makes them swear uh, an oath to them, uh, to him. Uh, he says, "If you bring me back to fight against the sons of Ammon's, and the Lord gives them to me, will I become your head? Will I become your ruler, your leader?" And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, "The Lord witnesses between us. Be assured, uh, we will do as you have said." All right. So they take this kind of uh, ill-advised oath that basically, hey, whoever, whoever can beat uh, who can, uh, whoever can beat Ammon you yeah you can you can rule over us we'll we'll submit to you right? notice they aren't looking to God they aren't repenting and crying out this time right you see that that downward cycle remember the cycle normally include them crying out for deliverance to Yahweh. This time they take it into their own hands, and they go to Jephthah. Jephthah is again—we're told—he's a mighty warrior, leading basically a group of, uh, of vagabonds, of vagrants, morally empty men. Um, the the Rechahim are worthless fellows. Some translations translate this at adventurers. That's uh, the NIV does that. That's really. Not accurate. It's pretty clear that these are the worthless men. They, they, are, they are morally empty. They are, they are corrupt. They, they, they are brigands, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> so there's a negotiating for power. Again, this is not the way that Yahweh was to raise up a deliverer in the standard cycles. Um, Jephthah appears, however, to be personally religious, maybe, um, because he says uh, basically he, he recognizes that the Lord will be the one that gives him up. Um, however, he still makes uh, the personal power play for uh, to, for control over the Gileadites, right? He sees that God will deliver the Ammonites into his hand, but he still uses kind of human ways and manipulation to gain power from that. Um, Jephthah's dispute. Then he he then goes to the Ammonites and he he gives them kind of a legal dispute over who owns the land. Um, he gives this long speech about the history and when the land was given over. Um, he's technically right in his historical analysis. So if you read th- uh, verses 26 and 27 about <clears throat> kind of the history uh, of the Ammonites, his argument is, is effectively, um, if this has been your land, why haven't you guys tried anything for the last 300 years? Like we've owned this land for 300 years. <clears throat> you know who, who 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 are you to dispute this now? Your your dispute isn't with me. The dispute was long settled among our ancestors. Is basically his his argument. Um, he he is wrong a little bit in identifying. He seems to identify that Yahweh is just kind of this tribal deity, right? He 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 makes Yahweh out kind of like Chemosh their God, um, who, who gives uh, the land to the people, um, he basically says, hey, Chemosh has given you your, your land. Yahweh has given us our land. Um, and so he seems to treat uh, uh, Yahweh as this tribal local deity in the same way that the Ammonites would have viewed uh, and, and the Israelites would have viewed Chemosh. Um, Deuteronomy 2.19 also states that Yahweh gave the land, um, the small portion of land that the Ammonites are currently possessing, possessing, um, not Chemosh. So again, while he has some of the historical analysis right, he doesn't get right that Yahweh is actually the giver of land to all people, not just to Israel. Um, so <clears throat> so there, there, there is that. I mean, it, it is possible that he's just trying to kind of, placate the Ammonites that he maybe doesn't think that Yahweh is this local deity and he's just saying like, hey, on your view, you know, you view Chemosh as this local, you know, Chemosh gave you your land Well, Yahweh gave us our land. He could just kind of be trying to play on their level rhetorically. Um, but there is enough here to, to kind of question if that's the case or not, or if he, if he really does think um, of, of Yahweh in that kind of local trial, tribal deity sense, which would make sense at this level of the decline um, in the spiritual life of Israel. Again, the main problem here uh, is the spiritual problem. There's There seems to be an ignorance of the law, which trumps... His empowerment uh, in uh, of the spirit uh, that shows up in verse twenty nine. Um, again, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Jephthah makes a rash and manipulative vow um, <clears throat> in eleven twenty nine to and thirty four um, to forty. So we see this um, in in twenty in thirty. He's talking about the victory over uh, he you know over the the Ammonites. Uh, um, In Mizpah, um, uh, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed hand over to me the sons of Ammon, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, uh, the, this is a rash vow. It's somewhat of a manipulative vow. It has it. So it, it moved. Oh, now we moved away from faith in God. You don't. You know. You don't You don't need these tests. Um, to Gideon basically saying like, Hey, I know you're gonna do it, but like, I need a sign so that I know you're gonna do it. To now this manipulative vow of saying, Hey, God, you know, if you give me victory, then I'll do this for you. It's turned into a much more Kind of a pagan concept of quid pro quo again, which goes back to this idea that that the the religious view at this time has really uh, has really devolved. It's downgraded. It's become uh, corrupted to viewing God as this tribal-like deity like the other gods of the nations. He's trying to make a deal with God, with Yahweh, like the pagans do with their gods. Um, So does this demonstrate a lack of faith considering the historical review that he just gave about God giving to his land to his people? Um, Again, it seems to me that it does. Um, There is a problem with the phrase, whatever comes out of the door of my house, um, now, Yahweh will not accept, you have to remember, Yahweh doesn't accept just any sacrifice, right? What if, What if it's an unclean animal that comes out of the house, right? So so what if what if it's a pig or something that they're not supposed to keep that comes out of the house? Does he still think that he would offer that as a burnt offering? Um, the vow is also unnecessary. Um, since he seems to already know again that Yah- he, he said earlier, Yahweh is going to be the one that delivers him over. So the vow seems unnecessary. He seems to already know that Yahweh is going to deliver them over. Um, and then we're told in 32b, um, again, that Yahweh is the one that handed uh, the Ammonites over. Um, there, there is a bit of irony here that Jephthah delivers Israel from the Ammonites, who sacrifice their children to their gods, and then he seems to sacrifice his daughter to Yahweh, who does not accept human sacrifice, right? So there, there does seem to be um, this irony, and we'll talk in a moment about what that sacrifice of his daughter actually means, um, but there, there is this kind of narratival irony that he's going to defeat the child sacrificers on a vow that potentially and, and may actually expose him to child sacrifice um, to, to keep it. Um, so there, there is a bit of narratival irony that, that we are supposed to read, I think, in this. Now, the question becomes, did Jephthah actually—so, you know, if you finish the narrative, uh, Jephthah comes back and his only daughter um, comes out to meet him with tambourines and, and dancing, um, and she was his one and only child <clears throat> besides her. We're told he had no son or daughter. Um, uh, so is it, did, did Jephthah actually sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering or was she just dedicated to temple service and the temple as a spiritual offering? offering somehow. Now, some argue that it can't be understood as human sacrifice. So Archer uh, argues this, and Kyle and Delick uh, argue argue this in their Old Testament commentary. Um, There is a well-known rule in Hebrew that the uh, connective particle vav uh, um, is often used as a disjunctive and means or uh, when there's a second proposition. That is, uh, it it, it might be, um, it shall be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Um, that may be the case um, in his vow that, that Jephthah meant that it would belong to God, unless it wasn't suitable. It, it it would be a burnt offering, right? So so he there there could be that case there that he's basically saying um, because there there is a way that you could dedicate your your firstborn child to the service of the lord it belongs to the lord it wouldn't be a burnt offering um, but he could be saying basically uh, whatever comes out to my house it will belong to the lord or it will be a burnt offering so if it's a human that comes out it will be dedicated and belong to the lord if it's you know a, a, an unblemished goat or some type of animal worthy of a burnt offering then it will be a burnt offering it could be a one or the other um, a human sacrifice would have been an offense and an abomination to Yahweh, and is prohibited by the law expressly in Leviticus eighteen, twenty-one, and twenty-two through five. Um, also, the two-month period of mourning <clears throat> uh, is—it it doesn't seem to be to bewail her approaching loss of life um but her virginity which seems to be superfluous if she's going to be put to death like like why would you mourn your virginity if you're going to be put to death um, you you know, no one expects you to be able to have kids. You seem to mourn your virginity if you are going to be dedicated to celibacy at, um, for the rest of your life, right? So the the mourning and bewailing over her virginity seems to also indicate um, that it was not a human sacrifice. And again, uh, the episode. Uh, ends with a, with a with a comment uh, about her virginity and states uh, after it states uh, he did to her as he vowed right so there seems to be a lack of marriage and an heir is the problem so in verse thirty nine it says uh, and at the end of two months she returned to her father who did to her what he had vowed and she had no relations with a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went annually to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite for four days in the year. Um, and so, it's again, it seems that the the, the issue. Uh, here is, is, uh, is, is the refusal of marriage and her virginity and the lack of an heir. Um, it's inconsistent, uh, also as an action of someone acting under the Spirit of the Lord, which is what we're given in verse 29. So again, we're told specifically in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. His next action that we're told is, is that he made this vow. So it would be weird also to say that <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to make this vow. Um, so that that is also strange. Um, and so the, the you know, these commentators would say um, that that likely what he did to her was force her to serve in the sanctuary all of her life without marriage or to be devoted at some type to kind of this perpetual virginity and, and service to the Lord. Um, so, you know, uh, again, Archer and Kyle and Delick, um, would would hold that view. There are others um, who think that Jephthah did offer his daughter as human sacrifice. Um, so Kundal uh, holds this view, Wolf holds this view, Davis holds this view in their commentaries. Um, Davis argues, quote, this is the, the most natural reading of the text, end quote. Um, the term the, the arguments they make is the term is the regular term for a burnt offering. It never means anything else. So they would think that that disjunctive use of the Vav is not compelling. And that this word just is the normal word for a burnt offering that it doesn't mean some other type of, you know, offer their celibacy to the Lord or something along those lines. Um, It it may be the case they they argue that he did not expect his daughter to come out um, for in his vow he uses masculine language and he's surprised when she comes out to meet him. Um, so Davis says, comes out of the doors uh, in Hebrew appears to be a purposeful action um, that it's not kind of this this, uh, you know, you wouldn't use this language. It basically is the argument of a pet. It does seem to be a human sacrifice, but he may have thought it was a you know, a servant. Um, or something, uh, you know, not his own daughter. So he may not have meant his daughter, but he could have meant, again, a servant or something along those lines. Um, again, showing the, the spiritual degradation of Israel that he really is offering a human sacrifice. Um, that would mean that he is ignorant of the law um, because that just wouldn't be permitted um, to, to, to offer uh, not only human sacrifice, but, but even, I mean, think about it this way. Even if he didn't mean a human, even if he was thinking animal, the sacrifices in Israel couldn't just be any animal, right? Even if it was a, even if it was a calf, for example, it couldn't just be any calf, right? They, they, they had to be clean. They had to be without defects. So what, so he seems, even if, so even if you make the kind of the diminished argument that he didn't mean humans, uh, he just, he meant, he meant an animal, it still seems to show an ignorance of the law because you couldn't just make that blanket statement of whatever animal was the first one to come out is going to be uh, a, a sacrifice because then you could be potentially offering an unclean animal, right? Or an animal that isn't fit for sacrifice. Um, and so it still shows, even on the most diminished reading of this, it still seems to, to show uh, an, an, an ignorance of the law. Um, the morning that you know those who argue that this they really did commit human sacrifice. The mourning of the virginity could relate to a state of childlessness, um, with no offspring to carry on the family line. Um, so, so they argue basically, hey, if this just meant perpetual virginity, would that really merit a, a kind of national? Annual four-day fast of all of the daughters of Israel, like this girl had to go uh, and serve in the temple and and, and be a virgin for the rest of her life. Let's have this annual, you know, all, you know, national, all of Israel four-day fast every year about this. Um, That seems to be an extreme if it's just she's going to serve in the temple of the Lord forever Um, because, um, you know, (laughs) other... Lots of other firstborn daughters did that. Um, so may, maybe you could make the case that because it was tied to the deliverance of Israel, that this, this service of the Lord in the temple was special in some way and procured victory. And so therefore it merits a four-day fast in um, this national holiday. Um, but that does seem to strain at credulity a little bit. Um, if one places the incident in the downward spiral of the book, remember this book is is circling the toilet bowl, and we are almost at the bottom of it. Um, if we place this book in that in that downward spiral, and we recognize the the ignorance of the law on Jephthah's part, then and you recognize again that 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 narrative irony that seems to be in place that he delivered them from the child sacrificers. And then he becomes a child sacrificer. Remember, we saw this in the Gideon cycle, right? We we see this kind of uh, uh, he he delivered them from the Baals, and then he started. He became a Baal worshiper and drove Israel even further into Baal worship than they were before. You kind of see that narrative irony throughout these. That narrative irony of him delivering them from child sacrificers by being a child sacrificer really does seem to be part of the intent of the the author here. Um, uh, So it uh, does lend credence also to the view that he did, in fact, sacrifice uh, his daughter. Um, those who argue against this because it would be an abomination to God, I think, are reading too much spiritually into Jephthah uh, and fail to recognize the negative aspects of the book. Um, now, there is this question. <clears throat> I don't have this in my notes, but I, 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 I do want to draw this out. Um, there is the kind of apologetical question of, well, you know, if God knew that he was going to sacrifice uh, uh, you know, his daughter, why would God deliver is- or Ammon into his hands and cause him victory? Like, isn't that God accepting that sacrifice? Um, the answer here, I, I think, is no. Uh, again, Israel, uh, Yahweh seemed to deliver Israel, uh, but there's no mention that Yahweh accepted the offer, accepted the bribe. There's no mention that Yahweh was pleased with the sacrifice. In fact, in the law itself, Um, There are stipulations for if you make a hasty vow, how to end and and get out of that vow, right? What sacrifices are make if you make a hasty vow. Basically, if you make a vow that the keeping of the vow would be sin— there is a way in the law to get out of that vow. You offer a sacrifice and you can get out of the vow because that vow would itself have been sin. And so the fact that, um, the fact that Jephthah doesn't do that again shows ignorance of the law. Um, we go to the final section uh, in, in, uh, in 12, uh, 1 through 7 uh, of Jephthah and his successors, um, shows again the progressive internal disintegration of the tribes uh, with the confrontation between the Ephraimites and Jephthah. Um, so if you read 12, 1 through 7, there's this power struggle um, between the Ephraimites uh, and Jephthah. Um, you, you contrast this with Gideon's tactful approach. Remember, we, we had a similar thing uh, with Gideon when... Uh, when, when um, uh Ephraim was left out of the the victory. He basically says, "Hey, look, I drove them into your lands and you got to you got to wipe them out. You actually got the glory of the final death blow for them right Gideon kind of has this tactful approach um, that jeff the <laughs> Um, does not, um, to to say the least. Um, There is this uh, hostility that grows between them. Jephthah shows there's, again, a little bit more, um, uh, there's a little bit more narratival irony that happens here um, where Jephthah shows more diplomatic patience with the Ammonites than he does with his own fellow Israelites, the Ephraimites, right? So, um, there, there is this, um, there, there is that irony that he is, he is more diplomatic and understanding and tactful with the people that he is that are oppressing him and that he's about to fight against, <clears throat> than with his own uh, brothers, right? So we, we see um, th- this issue. Um, and this is perhaps because the Ephraimites, they level the charge of illegitimacy against him, right? They call, they, they, they call him a renegade and, and fugitives. Um, they, they charge Jephthah uh, uh, throughout his entire life, um, right? All that kind of stuff. So um, although Jephthah appeals to Yahweh, um, Yahweh doesn't seem to be involved in this battle um, at all. Um, in this battle between the the Gileadites uh, again, who is Jephthah, and the Ephraimites, this is this is where Ephraim uh, they kind of set up that border, and anyone from Ephraim that's traveling, they have them say Shibaleth. Um, there seems to be a dialectical issue here that um, uh, the Ephraimites aren't really able to say. The the there's two there's two Hebrew words shin and sin. Um, they kind of look like W's. Um, Uh, uh, Sin uh, has the dot over the top left, Shin has the dot over the top right You remember that because there's a little little thing that Sin is not right Um, So you remember that the little dot is over the left Um, So the the, the Ephraimites seem to not have Shin in their their kind of dialect And so they ask them to say Shibboleth um, And they say Sibboleth because they don't say Sh. Uh, in, their, in their language, um, and then if they, if they are trying to cross into the Jordan and they say Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth, they are taken uh, and they are killed just for being there in the land, right? So much for treating the, 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 you know, you're supposed to treat foreigners and outsiders with respect, and you're supposed to give free passage to the fellow Israelites. Uh, here, we're told that 42,000 uh, men from Ephraim uh, are killed this way. By Jephthah and the the uh, the Gideonites, um, uh, sorry the Gileadites. So um, again, this is <clears throat> this is a, a problem uh, for again as we are, are are looking at this as a as a pro David pro monarchy. We start seeing you know the the historical ancestors of um, uh, of uh, of Saul are are seen in a bad light. So um, we have three more judges. Uh, three more minor judges, off-cycle judges, um, that we'll, we'll, we'll go through and then we'll get uh, into the Samson cycle in the next episode. So we have three more minor judges in 12, uh, 8 uh, through 15 to the end. We have Ibsen, uh, Elon, and Abdon. Uh, Ibsen in 12, 8, uh, again, says, Now Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel for seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. Um, so we see, that, again, that minor judge formula and their judge after him. Um, and we, we see that same type of formula for Elon in 11a. We see in their judge after him, and then Abad, uh, Abdon in 1213, uh, and their judge after him. So we see that minor judge formula. So again, we are seeing The formula, but we're seeing some breaks in the formula. Again, the the judgeship just verges on kingship. Um, Again, he has many sons and daughters, 30 sons and 30 daughters. Um, That means there's a harem, right? He has to have resources to sustain all that. And we start seeing um, kind of, um, we start seeing the expansion of power, right? We start seeing arranged marriages outside of the clan, um, expressly stated, right? So um, you, wh- why, why do kings offer their sons and daughters in marriage to, to those outside of, of, of the nation, outside of the clans? Um, because they're trying to build a, p- a power base um, and have uh, extend their political influence. Um, so we see that with Ibsen. Um, Elon was a Zebulonite. A ju- oh, uh, one more thing to note. Um, we'll notice he only judged for seven years, um, the next one, uh, Elon, for ten years, and then Abdon for eight years. Um, if you remember the, the, the minor judges before them, um, they were for you know for for twenty two years, for example. So we see um, the decrease. Remember, part of that circling of the toilet bowl is the decrease <clears throat> in the in the effectiveness of the judges. Um, Elon, again, comes next. It's possible um, he gave his name to the town from which he governed, um, so from, uh, from Elon and Igelon, uh, th- there seems to be some, uh, some legacy building, uh, some dynasty building there. He gave, uh, the, those, those are roots of his own name. Um, they have the same root. So, uh, he seems to be, uh, establishing and, and uh, not just ruling over cities, but now he is establishing cities. This is the city that I rule and reign. This is my little fiefdom. Um, So he seems to be doing some dynasty building himself. Uh, And then Abdon, we're told the the son of Hillel, uh, the Pirithonite, that's a tough one to say, judges are after him. He had 40 sons, and here we start getting this mention, and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Right. So now we see uh, his sons but now his grandsons are mentioned and even his grandsons ride on donkeys right so we're seeing the extension now now we really are seeing dynasty making right so so he has not only 30 uh, 40 sons he also has 40 sons and 30 grandsons and those grandsons even ride on 70 donkeys right so you see uh kingship now is just you know even the progression from ibsen um, through uh, who had, you know, he had his sons uh, and they were powerful, and he starts kind of doing this dynasty building and building, you know, marriage outside of the family. You now have dynasty, you now have multi generational, three generational, uh, you know, you have uh, Abdon, his sons, and the generation of his grandsons. They're all uh, powerful and riding uh, on donkeys. So this is just kingship, kingship uh, and dynasty front and center, which again, uh, is not a good thing in this narrative uh, in in the book of Judges. So remember, these are red flags to the reader when you read these carefully. Okay, so uh, we are now at about the 40-minute mark. So uh, I am going to—I was going to go through Samson, but I'm going to pin that. Uh, we'll do a Samson episode next time. So thank you again for joining. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out. You can email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at the freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Again, if you like the, uh, not just the, the biblical theological work over here on the podcast, if you want to see some of the apologetic works and debates that I've been in, you can actually go visit the Freethinker on YouTube. Go visit the YouTube channel. Uh, please subscribe and like. If you'd like to support the ministry, you could become a sponsor. Uh, you can visit uh, Patreon uh, or you can be click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. Uh, become a Sponsor through uh, Podbean, uh, the podcast podcast host. So thank you so much for joining. Uh, As always, again, you can visit as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention you can visit uh, the Facebook group, uh, the Freethinker Facebook group on Facebook and join in the discussion. So thank you again for joining us. Join us next time as we discuss the Samson cycle in the Book of Judges. Good night and God bless.